Welcome to Business Data Insights, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a digital pedagogy and media specialist and part of the MBA design team. In this podcast series, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about how they use a range of data to analyze business performance and inform strategic planning and decision-making. These interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. Nia Yari Giam, Jaganba na Gayabu, Yarrawa peoples, Nia Toowoomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Giyabul and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba. Our guest for this episode has managed big projects and experiences at Queensland State Library and set up a university library from scratch, including the team, collection, management and procedures. Claire Thorpe is now the Acting Director of Library Services at the University of Southern Queensland, where she has provided strategic direction, leadership and innovative management through the rapid and unprecedented change and uncertainty caused by COVID-19. Claire's recent presentation for the University Librarians Forum, Post-Pandemic Leadership, Skills and Education for the Next Normal, is a testament to her ability to turn the very bad into a positive learning experience. To do this, she uses evidence-based methods and analytics to implement user-centred innovations. And on top of all this, Claire is also a director on the board of the Australian Library and Information Association. Claire Thorpe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. Claire, can you tell me a little bit about the USQ Library and what work you do with them? Sure. So USQ Library has around 65 staff and we support USQ student, academic and professional staff with their information resources, digital literacy, and really just empower them to get better at what they do. Claire, tell me about libraries today because, you know, we're all familiar with libraries. We go there, we get out books. um, They've got, you know, music now. They've got all sorts of other sorts of resources. But tell me, what is an academic library? How is it different from the general library? And what sorts of things do you do apart from just loaning out books? So I guess, the, as you said, the, the traditional idea of a library is a, a place where you can go and access information. And for many of us, that experience was potentially going to our local library as children or a school library and borrowing books to read. The academic library environment is it includes part of that. We still have physical collections, but it's a very small part of what our offer is. So really, we exist both in the physical and online space. And 95% of the money that we spend on on access to content is on digital subscriptions or digital access. So at USQ, so as I said, most of our students study online. So they're not going to come on campus and actually physically see us or or get access to a physical textbook. So we have a, a digital first purchasing policy. So we are very much looking to make sure that our students and staff can access the information they need where they are when when they need it. And that means it needs to be in a digital or electronic format. And we're also big advocates of open content. So content that can be used in a variety of different ways, regardless of licensing uh, restrictions. That's a really different, different view of libraries um, can, compared to our childhood view. Yeah, absolutely. Having said that, our campus libraries are an important space for students who are 
working on campus or who live near to the campus. And we are really proud of the fact that we provide a safe and welcoming space. We are that third space. So for students who might not have a quiet study space in their home, we provide that for them 24 hours a day. They can come, they can have access to Wi-Fi, they can have access to computers and printers, and they can have that space that they need to work on their own, alongside their, their friends, in partnership with others to achieve their goals. So we exist in this sort of dual experience of both the online digital content space, but also providing that physical environment to help students achieve their goals. And tell me, Claire, is, is this, this, this is obviously, you know, the digital stuff is obviously new. It obviously came about after the internet probably much further after the internet, um, and it's probably been a change you've seen in libraries since you started your career? So I started working in libraries in 2001, and I guess one of the things that drew me to this as a profession is I could see the potential for growth. It was, as you mentioned, you know, around that late 90s period when libraries of all sorts started transforming from the focus on physical to digital. And certainly I started working in an academic library in 2001, and there was already quite a lot of digital content available. So Really, we've been working in this space, you know, for 20, 25 years as a profession. And I guess academic libraries particularly were really quite well set up last year with the, you know, the digital pivot during the pandemic because we had so much content already available. So shutting our physical spaces, while that, that was an inconvenience to students who, who use that as a, a study space we were still able to provide them pretty much all the content that they needed to continue in their studies. So we were really, I guess, almost future-proofed already um, prior to, to COVID. And, you know, there's been lots of other service transformations we've done during that period, but we were in a good place to start with because we had that digital experience and we understood how our clients were already using those digital resources. What an amazing place to be in for that crisis. Well, I'm not sure amazing is the word for it. it actually, I'm sure we've all got different experiences and memories of that time and obviously it's still ongoing. But, but it did help to know that, you know, we already had a really comprehensive offer and it was just, I guess, making our clients aware that while the physical doors of the library were shut, we were very much available both in the, the digital space, both from a, a content collections perspective, but also through our service delivery and being able to engage and support teaching, learning and research through online consultations and, and online study support sessions and using the technologies that we had. And one of the really exciting things for us with that transformation is we actually saw attendance at our events and our study support sessions actually significantly increase as students realise that that we were available, we were available at a, a time of day that suited them, in a way that suited them. We could, you know, they could contact us directly from their, their home environment or their work environment and get the support they needed without having to come on campus. So for us, it's actually been a really positive story um, you know, and that's been a really interesting thing to track. I want to talk about that technology now and business data. How does the library use data today? So I guess there's a, a few different ways that, that we use it. One is a, a short-term understanding what's happening in my library today. So some of the data points that I use for that. So as I've mentioned, our libraries are physical spaces and um, I'm recording this in the first teaching week of um, the main undergraduate study period for 2021. And it's really uh, the last two weeks have been 
a time when we've seen students returning en masse to our campuses for the first time in about 10 months. And so one of the data points that I use to have a look at uh, the busyness or the activity that's happening in our library is uh, people counters that I have installed over all the entry doors across our three campuses. So I have a dashboard that I can access and that shows me every half hour how many people have entered the library and what the current occupancy is. So particularly over the last two weeks where, we, as I said, we, we've seen people physically returning to the campus, I've been able to have a look at that data. I can compare that to the same time last year and see whether uh, people are returning in the numbers that we expected. And that gives me that, that sort of snapshot of, of what's happening today. So I guess that sort of short-term information is really useful for me just to understand uh, where we are at this point in time. I find that sort of data also very useful if we have implemented a change. So, as I said, you know, we haven't had a lot of on-campus activity recently. So, being able to see the change of being open again, being open longer hours, having activities happening back on campus, does that make a difference to the number of people coming into our libraries? I can see that data straight away and see that, yes, it has made a difference. So, that's the first way I, I, I use data. The second way, I guess, is more of the long-term trend analysis. And this is particularly where I'm looking at things like workload management and resourcing. So we collect a whole lot of data in libraries. Libraries collect stuff. And one of the things we collect is statistics. So we, so for example, in our, our client support team, who are our frontline service officers, they collect um, information about all the transactions that they have right across our different service channels. So that includes face-to-face inquiries on site. It includes chat inquiries, email inquiries, phone inquiries. So we uh, capture all of that data in the university's customer relationship management technology tool. And we're able to generate reports from that that show us the trends across a semester or a teaching period or a month or whatever it is that I want to have a look at. So I can see, you know, how busy we are at the start of a teaching period versus how, how that trails off. So if I'm looking at, do I need to employ extra casuals for the first four weeks of semester or do I need to stop work on another project so I've got people just available just to answer student inquiries, I know when I need to do that for. It also helps me make decisions about whether I need to recruit additional staff or whether I can leave um, positions vacant for a period of time if there's a you know, financial imperative to do that. It helps me understand which of our teams uh, are maybe have an, an inequitable workload, perhaps. Um, I can have a look at how long some of our chat transactions are going on for. Are we actually turning over the inquiries in an appropriate way for that type of service channel, which is quite a, a fast response. Um, I can have a look at our, our phone inquiries. What's the average length of a phone call to understand, you know, what the student need is. Are, are we answering the right type of questions via phone versus a chat inquiry? Again, because they should be quite different in length. So there's lots of sort of trend data that I can have look at to really understand what's happening in that team and to be able to resource that and manage the workload of that team appropriately so we're getting the right resources to the right place at the right time. So you're, you're making a lot of those um, analysis of the data, um, but that data uh, is mostly quantitative, would you say? For that example, it is, absolutely. And obviously, that's not the only way that we evaluate things. So I'm, I'm not going to necessarily make hard and fast staffing decisions based on quantitative activity because there's other work that goes on. But in terms of understanding the nature of my business in the same way, I guess, um, a retail site would if they're looking at um, sales, you know, over the Christmas period, for example, um, that sort of data can be really useful to understand when your busy peaks and troughs are so that you can manage 
sort of the pattern of behaviour over a longer period of time. I'll give you an example of, of another type of way that we use data that is a mix of both quantitative and qualitative. And that's how we evaluate the subscriptions that we purchase. So we purchase access to digital content annually, and that's governed by contracts and, and subscription and license conditions. And we have a whole um, methodology around that that incorporates not just quantitative data, but also considers how a information resource, a database, for example, or, or a package of journals um, is used by the university. So we look at cost per use as a quantitative measure. So how much does it cost for every time? So we look at how many times an, uh, an article in a journal package has been accessed. We, we divide that by the cost of the package and that gives us a cost per use quantitative measure. So that could be medium, high or low. We then compare that to, well, if we don't buy this package, how much would it cost us to purchase a single journal article from another provider? So what's the, the, what we call an interlibrary loan or a document delivery supply cost? So if we didn't buy this journal package and a researcher desperately needed something, is it a high, medium or low cost to actually source a one-off, for example? So they're the sort of quantitative measures that we look at. But then we also look at things like functionality and accessibility. How easy is the product to use? Because if it's easy to use, it's more likely to be used more. So that's a qualitative assessment that our librarians make based on a number of testing criteria that they apply. They also look at the content. How does the content align with the university's strategic um, teaching areas and research areas? Because we might have a database or a journal package that's incredibly expensive, but if it's required by either a large number of courses or it's the only package that's available to support a significant area of research, then the return on investment is actually justified because of its strategic alignment. And, and then we also look at things like, um, what's the support from the vendor? Are they responsive when we have issues? What's their downtime policies uh, and that sort of thing? So again, so looking at a whole range of things here that are not just quantitative, but are also qualitative and based on the experience of using the product. So yeah, so I guess that's a, a good example of something where we're looking at evaluating or making evidence-based decisions more holistically uh, using that, that mixed methodology of both return on investment plus the context, the strategic priorities of our organisation. And when I say organisation, I mean the university, not just the library. That's really interesting, Claire, because you're not, as you just said, you're not just looking at return on investment. You're not just looking at a financial factor. Indeed, sometimes you're suggesting that some things might be quite expensive, but, but they are desperately needed. And so you're, as a library, sort of culturally, you're supporting that um, stream for people who desperately need things rather than just saying, well, it doesn't fit our financial model. So that's a really interesting and probably different to most businesses um, model that you're using. And we can use that, that information to actually have conversations with our stakeholders. So a really good example is a couple of years ago, our, our business librarian at the time was evaluating a particular database. And it was actually a, a database that um, included business financial information. So a very unique product, uh, very few competitors out there for us to invest in. But she could see that it wasn't being used heavily but she could see that it had this strategic alignment to particular courses. And so she initiated a conversation with the, the academic, the course examiner, who was working in that space and let him know 
that this product wasn't being used and it was at risk of being discontinued if we weren't able to drive activity. And so he was actually able to build that into the course design to um, link it to an assessment item. So students actually began to see that this is a really useful product to use. It had direct relationship to uh, the study they were doing. It had direct relationship to, to their future business careers. And so the, the usage radically changed. And so within six months, we were really confident that the investment we were making in that product was being returned. So, you know, this sort of information, whether it's the, the quantitative data, but quantita considering the quantitative data in the context of our business, we were actually able to implement a significant change. And the usage of that particular product has not dropped off since in the last three years. So I guess that's a real life example of that. You can so you can actually change the data. You're not just being responsive by saying people aren't using it, therefore we'll get rid of it, but you're saying people aren't using it, but they should be, and we can change this data around by making the right inquiries. That's right. So at USQ Library, we um, we work in a way which is called evidence-based practice. And Evidence-based practice, some of the frameworks around that, um, there's a particular cycle referred to as the 5 A's framework. And I guess for those of you who know a little bit about action research or something like that, it's a, it's a cycle where um, you define a problem, you, you gather evidence to identify, find out more about that problem, you might design an intervention, and then you assess and reflect on whether that intervention's worked. So that example that I gave about that particular journal package or that database product, we, as I said, the business librarian, she defined that there was a problem here. This, this product was at risk of being discontinued, but she thought it had value. So she, she did gather the evidence, presented that to the, the relevant academic staff who then, you know, took that on board and designed a, an intervention or, a, or an activity that actually then drove um, activity back to that product. We reflected on that. We saw the evidence had changed or the data had changed and, and that sort of that cycle closed the loop, if you like. So that's, I guess, the way that we look at this. It's not just about gathering statistics and data to put them on the shelf or to say, look, we're really busy all the time and you should keep paying us, that sort of thing. You know, we're doing this because we have strategic needs to understand our business and to understand how we can improve our services so that they are client-centred, that we're connecting people to the information they need, that we're connecting people to the other people that they need to connect with, you know, that we are fulfilling our mandate within the university, which is to, to support the teaching, learning and research outcomes of the business. Yeah, well, it's, you've, you've really outlined there the fact that you've got a, a very strategic approach to the collection of data and, and the use of it. Yeah, I guess it's, as I, as I said, it's not just about collecting stats for stats' sake. And I always go back to that, you know, that classic Mark Twain quote about, you know, there are lies, damn lies, and there are statistics. <laughs> so, you know, we don't want to have statistics for the sake of statistics. We do need to record certain statistics. We do have external reporting that we um, participate in every year. That's part of our, our industry benchmarking. So there are things that we gather for certain purposes like benchmarking, but really it's, it's about gathering data, whether that's quantitative, qualitative, or, or a mix, to understand how we can continue to improve and how we can make good decisions. So if I have to make a decision between X and Y, I don't want to make that based on my intuition. I want to make an informed decision, understanding the impact on our clients, in understanding the, the context, the environmental context, 
So having these um, data, whether it's through systems or whether it's actually going out and talking to people, conducting a survey or seeking feedback from our stakeholders, all of these things feed into the decisions that we make, the service improvements that we're aiming for to make sure that we're meeting, as I said, our our mandate within the the community of the university. You've almost outlined a sort of equation for for gathering data that you can then sort of analyse and reflect on the use of the information in your library, whether that be journals, books, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're offering to the students. What I'm sort of interested in now is how do you then present that data especially if you're reporting it internally amongst your own management team, but then also um, I assume you have to report it externally, so still within the university but outside of the library to the executive. Is there a different way of communicating there? Very much so. This is something I'm really passionate about is around communicating with influence and using evidence to do that. And it really is around knowing your audience and knowing how to engage with them. So as I said, there are different audiences that we report to. So we have conversations, as you said, internally um, to understand our business and to understand the needs of our clients. And so we have with different ways of reporting that. So we have an action plan that we put together every year and we have different staff who are responsible for reporting against the targets that we've set there. Some of the ways that we do that are are just through standard sort of written reports, it's through presentation of, you know, some statistics, if it's a sort of an attendance or or a a use type case, but some of it is actually um, telling the story of what happened. Same as when I'm reporting to, say, the university community, what we try and do is present not just the statistics, but also the story that goes with that. So an example of that is a couple of years ago, we had a pilot of an academic integrity toolkit that was trialled in a handful of courses to see whether or not it would make a difference to student um, academic misconduct incidents. So we knew that there was a need that the academics had come to us and said, look, there's a need to increase students' knowledge about their responsibilities in academic integrity can you help us with this? And so we had a staff, a couple of staff members who developed this package. So when we were reporting on the story of that impact, we had data from the faculty about the fact that the number of academic misconduct cases in those courses had dropped. But we also then had stories from the academics about how that drop in academic misconduct made a significant impact on their workload because they were actually telling us that because they didn't have to deal with so many misconduct cases, they were saving tens of hours in the workload. It's hard to sort of quantify something that doesn't happen. It's kind of, you know, how do you measure the gap? But they were giving us the qualitative feedback that because they didn't have to deal with all of these cases because that number dropped so significantly, that they had time back in their day to do other things relating to their courses, to their research and the like. So the combination of both the numbers saying, this is the stats, this is where the numbers dropped, but also the emotional impact of how that changed the academic staff workload was was a really interesting way of presenting that more widely. And it created a really great platform conversation within the wider university that's now actually gone on and and we have, it's actually moved out of the library now and is being led by a whole unit that's just dedicated to academic integrity because it was seen that this was a wider issue and that we could make a difference if we put um, strategies like this in place more broadly across all of the courses. So I really love that story because it tells how we, we piloted, we trialled something small, 
but we were able to demonstrate through the data and the evidence that we collected, the stories that, and the feedback that we, we received from staff and students, we were able to demonstrate that this makes a difference. It makes a difference to the student experience because they're passing their courses. It makes a difference to the academic experience because their workload is transformed and they're actually engaging with students in a positive rather than a negative or punitive um, way. Um, and, and it's, you know, led on to, to be a strategic priority for the university. That's, a, that's an amazing story. And I think sort of one of the best things about it is that it is a story. Do you think that being a story, being a narrative in that sense that it has done far more than just the raw data would have done on its own? Absolutely. As I said, people don't believe statistics mm. because, you know, <laughs> as I said, they're, they're sometimes synonymously considered with lies. Now, do we trust the stats? Stats can be useful because they can, as I mentioned before, show trends. And really, that's when I'm looking at stats. Really, that's the first thing I go to is, is it, is it up or down based on comparison to hopefully oranges and oranges, not oranges and apples? And, and there's a whole sort of level of statistical literacy that, that sometimes people struggle with. However, if I tell you a story, I'm going to engage with you emotionally and you're going to remember that story. And so we try and encourage our staff when they are having conversations with people, just don't just show them the numbers, tell them the context, tell them the story that goes with that. Um, again, you know, just to, to use a well-known quote, Maya Angelou, you know, talks about the fact that people remember how you make them feel. Hmm. And that's what stories do. Stories make you feel something. So by telling you that story, um, hopefully you'll remember it and you'll remember the fact that, oh, the library actually played an important part in bringing academic integrity into, you know, a strategic priority development for the university. So for us, the stories are really interesting. And when I see stats without a story, it always I always want to know more. <laughs> And so that's when I go, well, do I need to find more evidence here? Do I need some qualitative evidence? Do I need to check it with some of my stakeholders and understand, you know, is this statistic, is this drop or is this stat that's staying at the same level, is it an issue or is it a just reflection of what happened today? So we do look at lots of different ways of presenting our stories. Um, so one of the things that we did last year which during the pandemic was to try and make sure that we captured the story of our digital transformation. So we were conscious of the fact we were doing lots of changes. We were doing them very quickly and we didn't want to lose that story in the midst of the crisis. So I have a staff member here, our, our coordinator of evidence-based practice, and I, I was looking around at different media sites and the like and you know, for example, sites like ABC News, where they were actually capturing timelines of events that happened with COVID-19. And I said to her, look, can we do something similar? Can we capture a timeline of everything that happened in the lead up to us shutting our doors on the 27th of March, 2020, and then subsequent to that? And can we tell that story through the presentation of a timeline? And she actually did that. And we, we've shown that um, across industry in a number of webinars and, and the like. But what we did is we captured the changes that we made, but we put them in that environmental context. So what, you know, why did we shut our doors? We shut our doors because the Queensland government, you know, put the state into lockdown. You know, the university made certain decisions as well. So we put those sort of environmental contexts around and we built this timeline so that staff could actually reflect back on the immense amount of work they'd done. They could see that we as the leadership team acknowledged that work, that we had paid attention to all of the things that were going on. And they could see the context that, you know, we had made decisions based on the environment that we were working in. 
And we were talking about this just yesterday, actually, about how we um, now that we are back on campus, that you know we are working in um, a not quite the same environment, but very similar to the pre-pandemic um, situation now, is how do we build on, on that knowledge and reflect on the way that we captured that data so that as we move through the next teaching period, is there, do we do a similar approach or do we just go, okay, well, that was a snapshot in time. Let's reflect on why we did that and, and the benefits that it brought and consider that sort of a work in, you know, a piece of work that was done. But it was a really effective, um, again, storytelling data visualisation tool. And visualisations, I guess, are a, 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 a type of storytelling. So, yeah, that was a, another example I, I thought might be of interest. It's fascinating because what you're really doing with that story and with the timeline and the use of data altogether and, and the use of quantitative and qualitative data is building a sort of three-dimensional story, a three-dimensional look at the library and what's going on rather than just a one-dimensional by using data. And you're sort of acknowledging that, especially with your story of, of the timeline during COVID, that, that your staff can go back and look at what they've done. And that's a really important thing to, to acknowledge the fact that that has been hard and there's a lot of work being done that you can sort of reflect on that and feel happy about the fact that you've gotten somewhere. So with the timeline... And I was articulating this to my colleague yesterday when she said, well, what were the benefits of doing that? And I said, for me, there, there were a number of benefits. And firstly, it was about documenting the actions taken and putting it within a context to, to as I said, capture and value the work that our staff were doing and to see, to demonstrate that we were being responsive to our client needs in a time of crisis. But having that timeline in place allowed me then when I was given the uh, approval to return to campus to actually look at, well, what did we change and what do we need to roll back? So it was almost a reverse blueprint for me coming back and saying, okay, well, we had to change these things to close. We need to roll them back to reopen. So it provided me with that map almost, if you like, of, of how to return to our services but through the development of the timeline, it did help us identify new performance measures because we did have to think about measuring things differently because obviously I wasn't counting people using our spaces for three months. So how do I demonstrate the worth of the library? And what new services had we put in place during that period that we actually wanted to measure the impact of? So it gave us that opportunity to stop and go, okay, what do we need to measure well now. So as I said, we transformed all our study support services to an online model. That gave us a really easy way of capturing attendance because we could see the, the number of participants in the Zoom webinar, making sure that we were capturing that. And we saw a, a, just a significant increase of, you know, over 150% of attendance you know, by moving from an on-campus to an online model. So yeah, so it's given me some, um, some new performance measures to look at. As I said, it had that communication benefit but it also helped me identify things we might want to keep in a post-pandemic environment. So we transformed our, our study support services to online only, and we're keeping them that way because it was so successful and it's continued to be successful in the months subsequent. We're also keeping a few other services that we saw a really good take-up of, particularly in the digitisation space, in making sure that we were offering an equitable service to all students, regardless of where they live, for access to both our physical collections and our digital collections. So it's really given me the opportunity to see things that, were, that worked well when they were 
changed or tweaked and making sure that we keep the best of the things that came out of that pandemic period. To um, interrogate any of this data that you're using, especially at scale, are you using any business intelligence uh, sort of software to do that, to look at at scale descriptive, uh, predictive or prescriptive sort of analytics that can come out of that data? So we have... um, tools built into our content management system. It it has an analytics module in it. So we're able to generate reports, particularly on the the use of our physical and digital collections using those analytics reports. So I guess that's probably the biggest data set that we have is around that usage. We do also um, put attendance data from uh, events and um, support sessions into uh, spreadsheets that then fit into Power BI so that we can have those dashboards of engagement and we can pivot that to look at, say, all of the engagement activities that we did in a particular school. So if a head of school wants to understand the engagement that library staff, librarians and learning advisors have had in supporting, say, first-year courses in creative arts, um, we can look at Power BI and change the filters and generate that understanding and that picture and that story for them. So they're probably the the two main tools. As as I mentioned, uh, the university has a customer relationship management uh, technology, which we also use because we are a customer service uh, facing service. So all our student engagement transactions go through there. And again, we're able to extract data from that uh, presented in a Power BI dashboard to understand um, how we're engaging with students, particularly in those different inquiry channels of face-to-face chat, email and phone. So I guess they're the the main three ways that we use technology. My only um, warning with technology is that the outputs are only ever as good as the inputs. (laughs) And I was just going to ask you a question based on that, which is your clients are chiefly your students, although you are reporting to the university um, executive, but the, the users of the library are the students and I guess also, of course, the staff, the, the lecturers and the professional staff. What do those clients think of the library and how do you gather that data? So that data is predominantly qualitative. So we do have feedback channels available and we encourage our staff to document and capture qualitative feedback, so anecdotal comments that are shared with us about the way that we're performing. We haven't for a number of years done a major evaluation of the library, but that is actually something that we're financially investing in this year. We're undertaking an industry benchmark survey, um, which will happen Later in the year, I'm not quite sure when, waiting on the vendor to contact me about the dates for that. But that will allow us to actually evaluate our services through this standardised tool and we'll be able to then compare and benchmark ourselves with around about 14 other university academic libraries uh, to see where we're performing. So we haven't done that since 2014. Uh, This will be the first time in a long time that we've participated in this particular um, survey tool. And I'm really looking forward to getting um, some evidence from that survey, uh, which will be of particularly of students, but hopefully we'll also be able to encourage academic staff participation in that as well, to understand whether we are actually meeting their needs in in the best way possible. There are other tools around. So, uh, for example, the Student Experience Survey, which is, again, a university industry survey that comes out, does include line items in it around the student experience for the learning advisors who are part of our library team, also uh, library resources, facilities and student spaces and textbooks. So there is uh, data 
available through tools like that that give me a sense of how students perceive or experience library services. But again, that's just stats. It doesn't have that, that story or that context around it. So, yeah, so I guess that's sort of the big things that I'm working with at the moment to understand whether we are actually meeting our client needs. I just want to end, Claire, on the future. Can you tell me what does the data that you've been gathering over the last several years, I guess, tell you about the future of your library at USQ? I always worry that libraries will be seen as a nice-to-have and we need to make sure that we are communicating our impact as a must-have for the university and being really smart about the way that we align ourselves with the strategic priorities of the business that we are a part of. We are a small part of a very large organisation. And so really what I'm looking at for the future of the library is to be able to easily demonstrate on request from the Vice-Chancellor or the the Deputy Vice-Chancellors, the impact of the library. So having those, the the data, the statistics available through technology tools so that we have our reporting set up so that if I, you know, get a short notice and say, can you tell me about blah, I've got that data, but also having sort of a bank of stories to be able to share that and make those emotional connections about the difference that the library makes in the lives of our students and staff. Because that's the intangible, that's the hard stuff to measure, is how you make a difference. Um, So we are working on demonstrating that through different ways and looking at different frameworks and benchmarks that we can use. So one of the things that we're doing at the moment is capturing stories around how our library is contributing to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So that's a a big global uh, ambitious agenda, but it's one that has local application. And so we can show and we're gathering stories that show how the library in its core business and also in some of the projects and initiatives that we have actually are contributing to sustainable development. So they're the sorts of things that we're looking to do to make sure that we're future-proofing our business to make sure that it is sustainable, it's robust and its value is demonstrated very clearly to our funding stakeholders and our university community. Claire Thorpe, Acting Director of Library Services at the University of Southern Queensland, thank you for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. Information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site. This has been a University of Southern Queensland podcast produced by the Office for the Advancement of Learning and Teaching.